Luke 13, beginning in verse 31, we get this kind of uh, tail section of, um, of kind of like this theme that we've been on for a number of weeks, and I guess kind of from here on out, the, the book pivots a little bit. Uh, but, but what we find in, in this particular passage here is um, an interesting case. You have that there are the Pharisees who are, you know, historically opposed to Jesus. They, are, they kind of seem to be looking out for him uh, to a certain degree. And then you find, like, uh, here in the text, Jesus responding to uh, this warning that he's been given um, and really, uh, you know, he gives a message to send back to um, to the governmental leader at the time, Herod. And then he kind of finishes with this like pronouncement of of judgment and, and also lament that takes place here. So it's kind of like an interesting um, way to wrap up this section because he has been making a particular point thus far as he's made his way through uh, the previous chapters there. Uh, it kind of happens in a cycle again and again where he's trying to uh, call all who hear him, uh, but particularly Israel, to respond to him. To like not just um, hear what he's saying, not just to, to take in the words, but to take action on the basis of this. And he's uh, said this again and again throughout the book, you know, trying to draw out that those who really belong to him and those who are seen as right standing before God are those who, re- who respond to God, who reply uh, to what he's telling them. Uh, and he's uh, drawn out these analogies throughout the book. If you um, look back at the parable of the barren fig tree there, he, there's kind of this exchange that happens where, uh, he, you know, there's uh, the owner is seeking to cut down this tree because it's not bearing fruit. And you find that um, in that instance, the vine dresser, uh, he, he, you know, kind of really acts as a mediator on, on the behalf of uh, on uh, of this tree and says, you know, let's let's fertilize this tree. Let's make sure that let's give it another chance and and see what happens here. And, and really looking for fruit to come as the result of that. Let's dig around it. Let's aerate the roots. Let's fertilize it. Let's do everything that we can. And if it doesn't, then we'll cut it down. But if it does, then we have great benefit. And so, as we've said throughout the um, the book thus far. We're always looking to see a response. We're looking to see how should one respond to Jesus because he doesn't allow us to simply uh, just say, like, thanks for that cool information. Uh, it, it causes us to actually make a decision, to make a choice about what we think about him. And so uh, here you find that the Pharisees are weighing in and they're kind of giving some information. Um, but do, do they have ears to hear? Have they been listening well? we dive in um, to the text and kind of get a little bit of a glimpse into their heart a little bit more so. But this sits in the background of Jesus giving the nation these warnings repeatedly. Throughout the book, throughout the entirety of it, he's been kind of trying to again and again and again and again just keep giving them chances. And so in the framework, as you come to the text this morning, in the framework of of, uh, the Old Testament prophets, he kind of... uh, 
just presses in a little bit more to lament in the same style, the same vibe as the, um, as the Old Testament prophets would over Israel. And finally, it finishes with, it, with a, a warning to them. And so this is where we kind of pick up our passage in, uh, in Luke chapter 13. Here's what we find in verse 31. He says, At that very hour, some Pharisees came to him and said, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. So remember, at the um, just previous to this, he's been kind of teaching. He just went through this whole section about the mustard seed and turning into this tree and the Gentiles being grafted in and then, you know, talking about entering into the kingdom of God, kind of coming into this narrow door and uh, it being difficult to enter into um, and really kind of calling out there the religious leaders saying, you guys think you're going to be in, but the reality is uh, the way that you're acting right now, the way that you're responding is is not in kind uh, with what God is expecting. And you're going to see your heroes there, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're all going to be sitting at the table there having this feast here in this kingdom, but um, they're going to be with, with the Gentile nations. They're going to be there having this great time together, and you're not going to be a part of it. And so there's this warning there that for them to, to make a change. And so coming into... into this moment then, now we get the reaction of the Pharisees uh, here warning Jesus to get out of Herod's territory. They, they uh, in that same hour, the Pharisees came and said, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. Now, Herod's territory was where Jesus had just been ministering in this region of Galilee and um, Perea. And, and here, um, he had kind of been making his way towards Jerusalem, but they're under the, the jurisdiction of, of Herod. And, and they tell him, hey, Herod wants to kill you. Now, why would Herod want to do that? Is this true? What's going on? Well, Herod, uh, who is kind of the, the person who's in charge of this region at the time, would have, uh, he doesn't really care what's going on at all. Mainly what he cares about is keeping the peace. His, he was charged with making sure that things were peaceful. So he didn't want he didn't want large crowds gathering. He didn't want revolutionaries. He didn't want big riots. And so as long as you weren't weren't stirring people up, as long as you didn't have like this massive group that would, was causing tension amongst other groups of people, he was just like whatever. What I don't care what happens. As long as it seems like there's no problems, I'm good. But as you see, Jesus has been growing in popularity. He has, uh, uh, has a larger and larger multitude following him. And then also the Pharisees are pretty upset at him because he's been saying these things again and again and again. And so they have their own disciples who are starting to uh, have a little bit of tension with uh, the disciples who are following Jesus. And so you've got these kind of two groups that are contrasting, that are opposing one another. And the Pharisees are, are really wanting to be rid of Jesus as uh, they've already been plotting. And in this instance, um, we find that they seem to be operating completely out of character because they have this great concern for Jesus. They have this huge interest in his welfare. They're like, oh, Jesus, Herod wants to kill you. Like, you should probably get out of here, right? Um, and so they're kind of giving him this warning. And it looks like a friendly attempt uh, to help him. But it also could just be, uh, you know, we don't have the, the, the clear insight here. We don't get uh, some parenthetical remark that says he said that they said this because they really want we don't get that we're, we're, we're looking at it from the from the perspective of like why would they say this and how are they actually responding and and it seems like the reason that they're saying this is because they don't want to be in bad standing with Herod 
And so if they can get Jesus out of here without causing a ruckus, they'll get him away from the region, uh, so that way that's dealt with, uh, away from their people, and he won't have as much influence. Uh, that will be a way to put them in good standing with Rome. Or they're looking to drive Jesus deeper into Jerusalem, uh, so that way then Herod and his troops will just deal with Jesus and collect him in, uh, themselves, and then the Pharisees will be rid of him. But as they have these, these perspectives, as, like we see what's, what's happening here, um, it, it's kind of designed for us to look at it um, from the point of speculation. It's kind of designed for us to not have the, the specific information there. We're meant to see um, what they're saying and think about why would they be saying that? Why would they be invested in this way? Why would they be operating in this way? And, and it's meant to be a contrast against responding to Jesus. They hear him speaking these things. Do you think that they are concerned for him because they see him as the king of Israel? As Lord and Savior, and they're like, we've got to preserve you, Jesus, because we, we've heard you, and we think you are who you say you are, so we got to make sure that you're safe. Is this what happens, or is this a facade? Is this a way that they pretend like they're operating in a way that seems beneficial and seems helpful, but is really only self-serving? A lot of times, this is the way that we actually interact with Jesus. It's like, okay, Jesus you know, we kind of approach him on the basis of like, Here, here's what I want you to do for me, Jesus. Here's how things are going to go. Here's how I'm going to work. And, and really what we're trying to do is we're trying to fit him into our box of how we want things to go, how we want life to be lived, how, how we've planned out our path. Instead of responding to him on the basis of what he has called us to, we're trying to shape it up. We're trying to, to move it in a direction that we want it to go. And so, he responds back here on the basis of his direction. He is not out to protect himself. He's not out to do anything other than uh, do the will of God. And so his response back to them is to send them back with a message. If you guys are so worried about me, then you won't mind carrying this message back to Herod, right? Uh, if you really have this allegiance uh, to me, and you're really going to align yourself with me, then you'll have no problem going and saying these words that are, uh, in a sense, uh, somewhat offensive to someone who is kind of a ruler. And so he tells them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. In the third day I finish my course. Now, if they really believed in him, and they were really like, this guy's the king, He's gonna, he, he is who he says he is, they would have no problem being like, sounds good, we will go and deliver that message verbatim. Hey, Jesus says, Herod, you're a fox, and I'm, we are testifying that he casts out demons. Do you think they're going to go do that? No, that's not what happens. They don't do that. If they are really responding to him, they will do it. But if they do not respond to him, they will not go do this. They will not take that message because they're protecting themselves. And so Jesus says, if, if you want to, if you want to play that game, you want to, you want to pretend like you're, you're following me, I will put things in your life to make you decide if that's really true. If you are really going to do that, you're going to be in a situation where I'm going to ask you to declare your allegiance. 
Go and deliver this message. This would have been kind of a uh, not helpful thing for Herod to hear from these religious leaders who want to be in good standing with him. They would not want to be like, hey, Jesus says you're a fox, uh, and, and he does all these crazy miracles, so you better watch out. Like, that's not the message that, that, that they want to take. But nevertheless, what Jesus says is true. Herod is a cunning individual. That's why he kind of brings this uh, idea of the fox out. He says, um, you know, you have these cunning ways, Herod. But what you should know, and what Jesus is testifying to uh, with the Pharisees, is that he is doing what he intends to do, what God has called him to do. And he lays it out in this way. He says, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Now, he's explaining that he's going to stay on track. He knows his mission is ultimately to go to Jerusalem uh, and to... He, he will eventually deal with Herod, but he's going to continue his ministry of testifying to who he is by casting out these demons, by uh, performing these, these cures, by healing the sick, by, uh, by giving this glimpse that, that uh, the brokenness of the world is beginning to be made right as the king comes into the world. That he's beginning to make all things new. It's meant to be this foreshadowing of his kingdom. And he says, I'm going to do this today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my course. Now, here, Jesus is kind of leaning into these um, kind of Jewish idioms. Today and tomorrow would have kind of been a shorthand for, for them to say kind of like just a short period of time. Uh, you find similar examples of this in the book of Exodus, in the book of Hosea, uh, where he's not really saying like, okay, like this is a really a three-day process here. Today and tomorrow we're going to do this. And, and then on the third day, you know, we're, I'm going to be done. I'm going to wrap it all up. It's not a, it's meant to be literal. This is a, a kind of uh, broadly figurative phrasing that he uh, speaks here. And uh, modern readers, you and I, we kind of double-click on some of these things because we're like, oh, the third day, the third day. We hear him saying he's, he's going to finish his course on the third day, right? So obviously we see, we look to the resurrection, but that would not have been something that these first-century hearers would have had. Like, he hasn't died yet. They don't know about the resurrection. This is not a thing. So they're just hearing Jesus saying he, he's going to get the job done. He's going to finish whatever he has determined to do. Nothing is going to hinder him in his performance of his duties. No power on earth can stop him. Nothing can, uh, can harm him until his appointed time. So Herod can make as much threats as he wants. The Pharisees, they can, uh, you know, kind of posture as much as they want. And he's like, but I am going to take this to the end. I am doing exactly what I'm supposed to do. And he goes back and he explains to them, Nevertheless, I must go on my way, verse 33, today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So he says, I'm going to continue my work. I'm going to continue this job. I'm going to finish my course as a prophet in Jerusalem. And he, he brings this out now as a not-so-subtle indictment of the Pharisees. If you recall, this is something that he has uh, harped on a bit uh, in a previous meal with the religious leaders. We'll get to that in a second. But what Jesus tells them is that basically the way that things work in this world is that God raises up prophets and they are killed pretty much only in Jerusalem. This is the spot where God's messengers go to die. 
It was completely characteristic of this city to murder servants of the Lord. And so, with this, he is indicating he is in that same vein. He is God's messenger coming and will suffer this same fate. This is why he elaborates in verse 34, and he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. So Jesus now comes to this, uh, he makes his point, but then he, he leans into this lament, this sorrow, sorrowful uh, declaration here. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Anytime that you see uh, these things like this repeated in scripture, what it's meant to do is uh, meant to act as like a, a superlative, right? In, in our kind of modern language construct, right? We would say that something is, uh, you know, it is good, better, or best, right? But, but in much of this uh, ancient languages, you wouldn't get uh, varying degrees of like different words. You would just keep repeating the word to indicate how intense your feeling was about that. So when Jesus is, is kind of repeating this again and again and saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, right? Or maybe you, in other passages you've heard him say, truly, truly, I say to you. He's not just like being fancy. He doesn't think he's Shakespeare there. Uh, he, he's um, trying to indicate how intense he feels about it. He's repeating it so that way you understand he's real serious here. He's making a, a strong point. And so here he's, he's crying out, almost echoing, um, you know, the, the cries of, of, of a mother looking for a child, right? Of, uh, uh, of this uh, one that would be looking for something that is lost. And so he says here, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This is the nation's religious center. This is uh, what God has established. And so they have not historically responded well uh, to what God has wanted to do. And Jesus wanted to care for these people. But instead, he frames them up as the city that kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to it. So he's lamenting that this is always the response that they have. Now, if you recall, back in chapter 11, he's at this meal with the religious leaders. And it's in that time where he's like saying these things and they're like, uh, about them that they don't like and you know the the scribes and the lawyers are like Jesus what you say offends us and Jesus like doubles down and he says like more things that call them out that call them to respond to to change and, and to reorient their life but one of the things that he says you read in Luke chapter 11 verse 47 he says woe to you right so this is a warning for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed so you are witnesses and, cons and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. 
So Jesus has already said this before. This is not a surprising thing that he said. He's just been saying, like, this is how you guys always act with the prophets. God sends people to you, and you're like, let's just kill them. We don't want to hear what they have to say. We're done with them. And he's lamenting this. He's mourning that this is always their response. Won't you listen? He's pleading with them. Why? I've been trying to tell you the same thing. I've been asking you. I've been demonstrating who I am. Please listen. And he uses this analogy uh, of, of um, kind of a, a mother and, and, and a brood of chicks. He says, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? So Jesus says, I've wanted to gather you together to protect you as a hen would have gathered uh, these, these babies. I would have gathered you together and taken care of you. I would have uh, let you hide in the shelter of my wings. This was the goal, to take care of them, to protect them. Now this, uh, in here, Jesus is using this image of a bird, which is actually common in in the Old Testament and and in much of Judaism. You find this in many places throughout the scripture, but I want to highlight just just three for you here. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 10, uh, we we kind of read this uh, description here. Speaking of the Lord wanting to protect, he found them in a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, like that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. So he, he describes this, this idea of protection, this fierce uh, bird that would, have, that would have spread out his wings and encircled them and gathered all of them to protect them. In, in the midst of a, a, a situation where there is dry and desert land, a wilderness, things that are barren, he says, you are the apple of my eye. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Okay, now we, now we fast forward uh, and we see the trajectory of how, how Israel should have been thinking about this. And we see this um, borne out in the, in the very words of King David. He was the one who God chose to be king, who was a man who was after God's heart. And here's what he says in, in Psalm 17. He says this in many Psalms because he gets it. He gets it. In Psalm 17, you read this, keep me as the apple of your eye. He's looking back to that time in Deuteronomy 13. He's like, just like you were there, keep me as the apple of, the, of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. He draws a direct understanding that like, this is what God does for his people when you submit to him, when you, when you surrender your life to him, that he will protect you. When you respond to him, he will do it. David gets it. And then you see this continuing attitude in Isaiah chapter 31. You know, in, in, in the book of Isaiah, you start to build this case for the servant who will suffer. The suffering servant starts, you know, kind of uh, in the late 20s and goes like all the way through like 35, 36, 38, somewhere in there. Right? So it kind of goes out for a little bit and you kind of get this case that's being built of God raising up someone who will, who will uh, be his person who brings his message, but this person who brings this message also suffers. And so in the, in the early moments of this, 
you find God describing his care for Israel in Isaiah 31. And he says this, Like birds hovering, Isaiah 31 verse 5, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. Right, so there's this idea of, of, of rebellion in place. And he's saying, like, I want to protect you. I'm, I'm like this bird that's hovering, and I want to protect Jerusalem, and, and I want to protect, and I want to deliver it, and I want to spare you, and I want to rescue you. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, you children of Israel. He's telling them, I'm ready to protect you, but you guys are not, you're not, you're not receiving this protection. And so Jesus expresses his, his, his affection for the nation of Israel. He desires to care for them as a, as a hen cares for uh, its chicks. But the response, as much as he cared about this, as much as he wanted to express this, as much as he wanted to gather the city together, he says, you were not willing. Only one thing stopped God from, from bringing this care to them. They didn't want him to do it. <laughs> that was it. They wished him to stay away. And as a result, this gathering um, with the offer of protection could not take place. They are unwilling to receive what God has offered to them. And so we find this statement then of judgment in verse 35. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the nation, they reject Jesus. And in rejecting him, they are making this choice that they want to be um, apart from him and are putting themselves in a position where they are, um, are fit for exile, basically. That they're sent away. And, and Jesus frames it up by telling them this, your house is forsaken. Your house is forsaken. Now, the Old Testament declared that this was a possibility. It said that this is an option that was on the table. If you don't respond to God's call, um, if you don't respond to him, this is an option. If you look at uh, Jeremiah 22, uh, verse 4, he says this, If you will indeed obey this word, then there shall enter the gates of this house kings who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their servants and their people. Verse 5, but if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. So what happens here is that Jesus says, this is not something that's foreign to you. This should have been expected. You've been warned by like so many prophets throughout the years. Your job was to respond and you didn't want to respond and you're unwilling to respond. So he declares your house is desolate. It's forsaken. This is going to break. And so this now empty house, this nation, is essentially turning out to be uh, declared to be that tree that doesn't bear fruit, that 
the axe is at the root of this tree. And he finishes with this declaration of, um, or the, the citation of Psalm 118. He says, I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus quotes here from Psalm 118, verse 26. This uh, psalm originally would have been um, the priest's blessing of those who came to worship in the temple. And so uh, it was a, a procession that would have taken place and probably would have been led by the king. And so Jesus says, until you acknowledge me, as the one who is blessed by God, the one who God is appointing, you are going to be under judgment. You are going to be in this situation. Until you make this declaration, this will be the case. And they're not going to see him again, he says, until you change your attitude toward him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the statement that is made. Now, if, if you are familiar with the scriptures, you, you know that there's a lot going on here. Because as you fast forward into the future chapters, you find that there is an instance where Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. In the Passover week, he is coming in at, uh, on this specific day, and the people say this. They start singing this out. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He, he's making his way in, and they're all, they're all shouting this, this promise, that this would have been the thing that happens when we, when we all make our way down into the temple. When we're all going to participate in the Passover. And they participate in it, and they see Jesus, but this promise doesn't come to the fullness of, of, of uh, its meaning. Because these people aren't actually operating in allegiance to him as king. And so it's one more opportunity for them to, to make a response at that moment. It's one more opportunity for them to, to decide, do we want our house to be desolate? Do we want this to fall apart? And it's in that moment on that Palm Sunday, that triumphal entry, that they decide, we're going to go our own way. They say one thing. They say, oh yeah, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But then when it comes down to actually making that choice and acting like he is the king, they don't follow through. They have the same heart of the Pharisees. Jesus, you better get out of here because Herod's going to get you. There's words and then there's actions. And Jesus desires to protect them. And he's been desiring to protect them thus far. But Jesus is not one who forsakes his people. Even in their faithlessness, he makes a way for those who still want to trust in him. Because what does he do? He goes on that uh, Palm Sunday down into the Temple Mount. He makes his way up there into uh to that place where he can be seen and witnessed by many. He makes his way through the entire week. And uh, as God's Passover lamb that is being uh, presented before the nation. And on that last day, he is slain at the cross. He is 
killed there for our sins and for our transgressions. You see, what's happening there is a real-life, once-and-for-all sacrifice that is in the framework of the Passover. That's operating squarely within um, what Jesus is talking about here. He is going on the third day. Uh, he's going to he's going to rise. He will resurrect, but he will suffer first. And when he says here, when he says here that he longs to uh, gather his chicks and spread out his wings over them. He's, he's actually doing something pretty cool here. Because this word, that they, the word that is used there, is a word that's connected to this Egyptian word. That is uh, speaking about birds putting their, putting their wings around. And, and where, was, where was the Passover happening? In Egypt. And in there, the word Passover is that same word. They, they, they overlap, they share, they share roots. And so what Jesus is trying to tell them is, I'm trying to provide a covering for you. So that way, when the angel of death comes, when you face judgment, I will be your covering. He's trying to tell them, I'm not just trying to, to control you, I'm trying to protect you. I'm trying to put my wings around you so that when, when you are facing judgment, you might hide in the shadow of my wings. And that's what he ultimately does as he makes his way through on that Palm Sunday and they make that declaration, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they don't really mean it. They sort of mean it, but they don't really mean it. They don't follow through. It's another example of their failures. It's another example of how we say one thing to God, but then we mean another. We, acted, we say one thing to him, and then we do something different. He makes a way for us to have, to, have, uh, to have life, even in the midst of that, because he pays for that sin at the cross. He goes there to the cross and pays for our sin, and he covers us, in his blood, so that that judgment might pass over us. And then finally, we get to that same response. It's just up to us about whether we are going to respond and we are going to come under the shadow of his wings or whether we're going to say, I'm going to go it alone. I don't need your protection, Jesus. I don't need you to cover me. I don't need you to take care of me. Even when the people of Israel had rejected him, he still went to make a way for them to have this uh, protection. He's lamenting that they didn't choose it on their own. He's like, I'm going to protect you even though you hate me. Even though you were going to be the ones who were going to kill me, I'm still going to make one more way that you can choose this. This is the invitation that we all have as we come to the text as Jesus laments over Jerusalem, let us not be a people who are making that same choice, who are rejecting him, who are not responding to his call to be protected by him. But we want to come under the safety and the shadow of his wings. It's an invitation that requires nothing but humility, a confession of weakness, in an acknowledgement that 
He is who he says he is. He is the king. And we bow our knees before him. And we go wherever he wants to go. And we do whatever he wants to do. Because he has loved us and rescued us and made us his own. And it's in that we rejoice. Let's pray and respond together. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness and love. We're thankful that you have been so faithful to watch over us. Even when we were far from you, when we are faithless, you remain faithful. When we do not um, approach you on the terms that you wanted us to, you still made a way for us to have another opportunity. And so we don't want to waste this opportunity. We want to finally be a people who are hearing your voice, who are responding, and not stubborn, not prideful, not stuck with an attitude, but where we want to um, respond to you as our king. And so they'll grow our faith and, and cause us to also respond in worship now. We love you. Amen.